0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Thinking about the Omicron variant here, it I think the question I get most nowadays is, when will this peak? And let's talk to a professional on that issue, Dr. Syra Madad. Title is Senior Director system Wide Special Pathogens Program. Man, that sounds impressive. NYC Health and Hospitals. Uh, Dr. Madad, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time here. You know, I guess we saw in South Africa a relatively quick acceleration in the Omicron variant, but then as, as quickly a deceleration, a decline in that variant as well. Is that something we can expect here in the United States, do you believe?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of caveats to that. Yes, I think many of us are predicting that the Omicron wave is going to be less um, of An issue in terms of how long it's going to be at very high levels of community transmission and so we may see the peak you know faster compared to the Delta wave and then having kind of a faster decline Um, but at the same time it's hard to extrapolate if we are going to see the same uh, kind of really quick acceleration and a very quick you know deceleration because South Africa their population is very different in terms of how young they are amount of immunity in their population and different types of factors here in the U.S. It's very different as we go by state by state. So here, for example, in the, in, in the city of New York, where I am in, we are still seeing alarming number of case growth. You may be seeing um, percent positivity kind of decline a little bit, cases, uh, new infections decline a little bit. But it's still a little bit too early to tell. But again, we're hopeful that we are going to see the peak very soon. And I think
2: by next week, we'll probably have a much better idea of have we reached the peak or are we over the big hump. I think people have a lot of questions about some of the hospitalizations and some of the data coming in. Dr. Anthony Fauci last week said that, um, at least with children, hospitalizations are overstated because people are coming in with appendicitis or a broken leg. They're automatically being tested for COVID and they're being labeled as COVID hospitalizations. We heard similar from the CEO of Northwell Health yesterday. Are you seeing that as well? Well, you know, for example, the New York State governor has come
1: out and has mentioned that, you know, um, they do want um, hospitals to break down who is coming in with a primary diagnosis of COVID and versus those that are coming with a secondary diagnosis, mm-hmm. meaning they're coming in with other issues non-related to COVID and we're just picking up COVID. So I think the big question here certainly is, obviously, are we picking up more incidental, um, you know, COVID um But at the same time, we also want to look at the acuity of these patients. Are they coming with high acuity or low acuity? So I think right now what we are generally seeing across New York City is that the acuity of these patients that are coming in to the EDs are lower acuity that have COVID, which I think bodes well with some of the studies that have been coming out now that um, with Omicron in particular, you're seeing more of a mild illness. But I would say, again, a caveat here is a mild illness for one person may not be a mild illness for another person. So, you know, I think uh, when we look at, those that are currently hospitalized across New York City and the Department of Health does a really amazing job and there's a graph that really is just so remarkable and telling and if you're looking at who is currently hospitalized you're seeing by and large the majority of those that are unvaccinated so you see the line really shot right up for those that are unvaccinated versus those that are hospitalized and, and are vaccinated.
0: Doctor, when we get to the other side of this Omicron variant, will we be left with effectively two populations, one that's been vaxxed, boosted, uh, and the other that has been infected uh, with some variant? Is that where we're going to be?
1: You know, I think this, this variant is going to put up much more immunity in our population, and that's it's a good and a bad thing, right? So the bad thing, obviously, is we don't want anybody to get infected, and we'd rather have them have that vaccine-induced immunity um, if and when they do encounter this virus. And if they don't have that vaccine-induced immunity, you know, I think it's pretty certain that it's just now a matter of when people are going to get infected um, with this virus, knowing that it's going to be with us in perpetuity. And so that's where we want to make sure we emphasize that people have these army of soldiers, Um, these antibodies in their body before they encounter the virus, they have, you know, low uh, risk of severe um, outcomes. And so I think as we look at moving forward year three in this pandemic, what are we going to see? How are we going to move forward? You know, I think that we are going to have much more immunity in our population. We probably will go variant to variant. So You probably are hearing more new variants kind of come up, um, you know, on the radar That's just going to be, unfortunately, the reality, but I think that if we have um, better immunity in our population, we're able to kind of um, save off kind of the worst outcomes um, of uh, of this virus.
2: We heard from Scott Gottlieb as well, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, that this was the year when we finally start to treat this as the flu. Seasonal, we care, but it doesn't shut everyone down. Do you see that as well this year? Is that year?
1: I am hopeful um, but I think it's one of those things prediction is a, is a fool's game in that sense um, and so we can't predict exactly if this is going to be the year or if next year is going to be the year eventually we will get over uh, this this big hump we will learn to live with this virus and we have we will have kind of an endemic state it's very hard to tell when that's going to be and certainly I think the the indicators that we have is showing that that will be the case for this year but again with this virus I think that. Number one thing many of us have learned is we have to stay humble and be, have humility because this virus is throwing so many different curveballs all the time.
0: Absolutely is absolutely right. Dr. Syra Madad, Senior Director, Systemwide Special Pathogens Program for NYC Health and Hospitals, giving us the latest here on this Omicron variant. And as it winds its way uh, through the population um, here in New York City, schools are open. Um, I know in other parts of the country, various big cities, some schools are closing, going virtual, if you will, um, and not here in New York City. So we'll see how that plays out. As we've been over the past couple of years trying to get smarter on this virus, on vaccines, on boosters, there's been a th- something that I've seen written about a lot. And I have to admit, I didn't, I don't know too much about, but I want to get smarter on, because I didn't spend... I Maybe mean, I didn't spend enough, pay enough attention to my science classes growing up, but T-cells and what that means here as we think about treating, continuing to treat and deal with this pandemic. But uh, our next guest certainly knows about that stuff. Chad Robbins, president, and CEO, and co-founder of Adaptive Biotechnologies Corporations. It's a NASDAQ-listed company. ADPT is the symbol on your Bloomberg terminal. It's got a market capitalization of $3.6 billion. Chad, thanks so much for joining us here what do I need to know about T cells and and how they deal with uh, this virus?
3: Well, first of all, thank you. Good morning. I'm really pleased to be here today and speak with you about the importance of T cells, especially during the height of this omicron wave here. Um, there's really uh, you know a couple of things to know is that there are two parts of the adaptive immune system, uh, antibodies and T cells. I and mean, we've heard a lot about antibodies over the last couple of years. But now we're starting to hear about T cells. We've been banging the drum about T cells. Uh, your antibodies or what is your humoral response, they're there to prevent disease. And your T cells or, or your cellular response are there to eliminate disease. Um, viruses use human cells as factories to create more virus. And so if you, one good analogy, if you think about it, is that the vaccines induce both these and. Am- B-cells which create antibodies in these T-cells. And these antibodies are a fence around the factory to keep the virus out. Uh, But the other way is these T-cells, is once the virus winds up getting into the factory, these T-cells are like the bombs that destroy the factory when they do get in. And what's happening now, as we move through the Greek alphabet on these variants of concerns, is more and more of the virus is getting into the cell. And it's really the T-cell that's playing this really critical role In preventing us from getting really sick.
2: Okay, so what does the research show us so far then about preventing the disease and different levels of this in different people?
4: Yeah,
3: well, our study found that greater than two-thirds of the T-cell response to the vaccines is on target against the Omicron variant, while the antibody response has dwindled below 10%. So it's really not not correlated and so a lot of the virus is getting in and the t-cells and that response level is staying extremely high uh, which is what ultimately is one of one of you know why we're having cold and flu-like symptoms for the most part uh, if you're vaccinated because these vaccines are inducing uh, this, this this you know pretty strong t-cell response
0: so chad i mean there's so many arguments for getting the vaccine we we, we all know them um if you don't have the vaccine, let's say, and, and you do get infected, do you then have natural T cell immunity there? Uh, you, you you do have some natural T cell immunity, um, but what? Luckily,
3: uh, and it wasn't necessarily the intention, but the vaccines actually induced a a very significant, diverse, and robust T cell response. So your T cell levels and your response is extremely high with the vaccination. In addition to, I mean, what happened was originally, right, we designed a very specific kind of fence against the original strain from Wuhan. But as, as you started to have additional strains, the virus is mutating much faster than you can manufacture and distribute the vaccine. Uh, therefore, it's really this, this, this kind of T cell response that's wind up is really protecting us uh, against it so if you're vaccinated that's why if you're if you're excuse me that's why if you're not vaccinated the chances of you dying or being hospitalized are that much greater
2: What do we know then about because you talk about how the vaccine it's changing so quickly that the vaccines can't keep up just technologically we can't distribute them as quickly as the variants are emerging what then can we do? What what are some of the, the, the takeaways as we think about maybe this becoming an annual sort of flu-like seasonal event?
3: Yeah, so actually, um, Adaptive partnered with a company called Nycode, a publicly listed company uh, in the Netherlands uh, that... Uh, where we're specifically designing a vaccine to induce a, T, a, 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 very, a, a robust T cell response. We actually know the parts of the virus that, that, that protect us and that induce a, a very diverse T cell response. So specifically designing a T cell-based vaccine as a universal booster is, is one thing that we can and are looking at doing. Uh, the other thing we can do, is Adaptive has developed a, a technology um, called t-detect.com that's able to measure the T cell response. So the ability to know when, when your T cell response continues to be high and how long. Uh, so the, the question of when it is that we actually need to take a booster. Uh, one thing that needs to be done is the FDA uh, needs to incorporate the T cell response in all of its clinical trials period. We now have the technology to do this and it needs to be done because seeing that T-cell response and measuring that T-cell response is a is the measure of, of, of vaccine efficacy.
0: And so, it, it, Chad, do you believe that as we continue to iterate vaccines and, and, and maybe get to an annual, you know, kind of flu slash COVID vaccine, that they will, in fact, be, you know, really sensitive to the creating that T cell immunity I
3: I do I do do believe that and I do believe that's why uh, this virus will become endemic in the population Uh, over time it'll become more like the uh, you know the flu or cold and flu that we will get kind of an an annual an annual shot to be able to continue to induce uh, that that T cell response Uh, and, and and it'll will wind up essentially being um, being in our population unfortunately uh, like the flu is but but fortunately, we do have this you know amazing mechanism of our immune system and fortunately, we have the ability to measure it now uh, so in particular there's a there's a population out there the, what, that are immune compromised um, that don't mount uh, an anti, an antibody response so it's, you can't you can't measure that so you need to measure the the, the t cell response to to see if these this, this subset of the population, those are that are on B cell-depleting um, therapies, such as blood cancer patients uh, or immune-compromised right. or, I mean, patients, um, they really do need to be able to measure their T cells.
0: Chad, thanks so much for taking the time and uh, sharing uh, your knowledge and wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. Chad Robbins, president, CEO, and co-founder of Adaptive Biotechnologies Corporation. Let us get a little bit smarter on this concept of T cells and how they help in the fight against this coronavirus. And as Greg Jarrett from Bloomberg uh, News pointed out, we first heard about this with HIV, and I do remember that. Let's talk taxes. Why not? Everybody loves to talk taxes. I think taxes are going up is what I understand. So what do I need to do in terms of my portfolio, in terms of my tax planning? Um, I I don't know. Let's go to a, somebody who does this for a living. Lisa Featheringill. National Director of Wealth Planning at Comerica Bank. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us here. What are you telling your clients here as we head into 2022 in an era that likely will have some higher taxes?
5: Good morning. Well, there are a couple of things that I am suggesting they focus on. First, it's the beginning of a new year, so it's always a good time to make sure that withholding is accurate, that contributions to retirement plans are back at the level that they need to be. And it's a wonderful time to update the balance sheet. Uh, And actually, this is something that we do in my household every January. And if you've ever changed jobs, you know how you have duplication of, let's say, 401K plans and HSAs and all those types of things from multiple employers. It's a wonderful time to pull everything together, look at what you've got, and look at the asset allocation across all of those buckets of assets and rebalance. So even though you might incur some gains, from a strategic perspective, it's great to go ahead and take those gains and and reinvest the money and maybe some asset classes that didn't do as well last year. So that's a good place
2: to start. Yeah, you know it was interesting because Paul was saying that. Um, well, as we've heard, taxes aren't going down. Uh, we know that, but uh, you know I am curious if they're going up because when we talked about build back better, at least for now, it's been shelved for the time being so where are we in terms of the tax outlook
5: well you know it's in the senate uh house right now but um the senate has said they are going to take it up there was a lot that was included in the original legislation of build back better that that never made it to the senate so you know we escaped a few bullets but there are a couple things to be aware of One, if the Senate takes this up in January and it makes its way through the legislative process early in the year, we don't know if the legislation will be retroactive to January 1. It's possible. So that's something to be on the lookout for. The other thing is the surtax. So there's not a real increase in tax rates for the majority of people, but for Individuals making over $10 million a year or trusts with income over $200,000 a year, there is that new surtax that's proposed in Build Back Better, 5% for individuals making $10 million or trusts at $200,000, and it's an additional 3% for individuals at $20 million of income and trusts at $500,000. So a lot of tax planning around trusts and beneficiaries I could see happening this year, too.
0: Hey, Lisa, for those of us in the metro New York area and some other urban areas uh, like San Francisco and Los Angeles, the whole SALT tax deduction cap, that's a big thing. Do we know where that is now? Because that seems to be a big point of discussion amongst legislators.
5: You're absolutely right. A lot of back and forth. There was talk about a $70,000 cap on the deduction and a phase-out, which would really uh, affect high-income taxpayers, but no real clarity on that one yet.
2: And that's what's been so funny, because I know that we've been talking a lot about the salt cap deduction yep. and just not quite getting there Lisa talk to us sort of in, in the future what what are you talked a lot about some of the rebalancing and we know that at least on the big pension level we've seen that maybe some rebalancing out of equities back into um, bonds just given the big outperformance are you seeing that as well on maybe an individual level
5: oh absolutely and we actually actually recommend more of a strategic uh, rebalancing. So let's say you've worked with your financial person and you've come up with a target allocation, say between fixed income and equities. Well, you know the last three years that the, the um, even the domestic stock market has been up over twenty some percent. So naturally, you're going to be out of balance. So what I like to do is take some of those profits on the ta- off the table, right? Um, Go ahead and rebalance so that you're at your target allocation, say, for the equities, which would mean selling some, and to get to your target allocation for the fixed income, which is probably lower than target right now, you end up buying when the values are a little bit lower.
0: Lisa, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts and perspective here on how we should be thinking about our portfolios and what might be a higher tax environment. Lisa Featheringill, National Director of wealth planning at Comerica Bank. Right now, I'm thinking about alternative investments because I'm looking at a rate environment where I'm not sure where I'm gonna get a return here. Certainly not in the treasury market. I'm not sure about the equity markets given the big move in 2021. So I might need to think about alternative investments. Our next guest thinks about that as well. CJ Fellini, managing partner of Noyak Capital. CJ, thanks so much for joining us here. What alternative investment ideas, areas, are you talking to your clients about here as we enter
4: 2022? Well, um, again, great to be here. Hello, Taylor. Hi, Paul. Um, We are focused on real estate, and we have general themes, and then we execute within those themes, primarily supply chain and logistics. It's so exciting to talk about the scintillating topic of supply chain and logistics, which heretofore, (laughs) you know, past five years, you didn't have 27 mentions, and we've had 27 mentions on the general business channels today, thus far. All
2: right. So talk to us about the, the themes that you're looking at. We've been talking about supply chain has been a big one, right? Investing in warehouses, some of these mobility hubs. Where are you looking at right now?
4: Well, we, we have a diversified approach, so that includes dry industrial, um, but especially the cold chain infrastructure, cold storage, also known as. Uh, mobility hubs is more of a, of a development and a value add play where we believe, as, as do SoftBank with their $1 billion investment about a year ago, 18 months ago, and Uber Eats and DoorDash, that large structured parking garages are going to be underutilized for parking in the future. They're well located. They're they're in downtown MSAs, close to populations, and they're big, and they are, and they can be repurposed for micro fulfillment. So as a theme, micro fulfillment will be discussed just as much as the ships docked off the L.A. port is right now. You're going to have um, you're going to have cloud kitchens on the roof. You're going to have cold storage pods uh, on deck four. Uh, You're going to have Amazon and other lockers where you can do where you can do drop off and pick up because we have to rethink what supply chain really means in this country. Just a quick aside. Listen, nation states are becoming more xenophobic. Globalism was attacked mercilessly under the last administration. So every every developed country has to build sustainable, vertically integrated supply chains within their own boundaries. That takes years. It's really hard. Amazon is building an airport network under executive Dave Clark just to do that, their own airport network. We believe that there is a version for the middle market and small business that it has to be built from the ground up, and that is what we're discussing in supply chain and logistics, and more importantly, micro-fulfillment.
0: So, CJ, where are we seeing this? Give us some examples of this micro-fulfillment because I, I you know, there is that – Obviously, that, chain of, uh, that uh, thought that we are, do need to onshore more of the supply chain. Where are some good examples that you're seeing it?
4: Well, there's two versions. It's a barbell approach. You have the legacy, the older regional large massive distribution centers that are more hub and spoke, if you will, using, pointing a term from the aviation industry, airline industry. Hub and spoke, that's fine. But people are, are, are dispersed. They're not, they're moving out of cities. So you have to deliver where they are. So, for example, um, there's a company called AmeriCold. Yes, it's publicly traded, and it's a REIT. They are buying, previously it would have been an average of 100,000 square foot regional distribution for the cold supply chain. Now it's 15,000 in a borough of New York City, which is within 20 minutes of the mass of the bell curve of the population. So if you can't bring organic or frozen produce to the, the largest portion of the population, Within 20 to 30 minutes, you're in the wrong location for for coal.
2: Yeah, interesting. I'm also taking a look at your bio, and you're an early-stage investor in in SpaceX and and taking a look at supporting growth for female entrepreneurs. Talk to us about the female entrepreneurs, some of the ideas, and some of those investment opportunities that you see.
4: Well, I, I wish I could say that I was more pressing on that. I learned from some very smart people, Jesse Draper of Halogen Ventures, Steve, uh, Steve's daughter, but, uh, but a phenomenal investor in her own right. Um, they, they gave me a very simple thesis. You know, here there is maybe a, a, a gross underinvestment or underallocation of venture capital and family office and RIA capital in female founders to the tune of maybe 60, 70%. If anyone thinks that there are not capable female executives who can create unicorns to that degree, they are grossly mistaken. So that that reallocation of capital is going to realize that they have to deploy capital in these companies, and they're going to do it quickly. So those people who are there first are going to benefit from understanding that that, that distortion in the allocation of capital in under female founders. Um, I do it both direct as well as through people, as I mentioned, Jesse Draper of Halogen Ventures, and it's across the gamut of fintech, a lot of CPG, which we love uh, uh, because of its cash flow and, and its scalability. And there are there are there investment clubs for the the, um, the smaller investor. Golden Seeds is a great way to invest less than ten thousand dollars. In a female-founded company, and they are open to everyone.
0: CJ, where, what percentage of you, of an a individual's portfolio do you think should be allocated to alternative investments? Because you know the argument can be made that you know most investors um, are underinvested in you know maybe some of the alternatives.
4: Um, excellent question, and unfortunately we only have seven minutes, but I'll try. I'll, I'll try and parse it. So yes, it is. It is something I rail against nonstop that investors of every size and stripe, whether it's billion-dollar family offices or the retail investor at a $50,000, 100000 level total or $20,000 level, we are all under-invested in alternatives. Now, within alternatives, there's, there's varying categories. I, I, I would argue that that private real estate investments, private REITs, should be up to 38% of, the, of your alternative Allocation. Alternative, 25% of your portfolio, if you want a rule of thumb. Mm. There's, many, there's many disagreements on that. I follow Robert Swenson, the legendary yep. Yep. Um, late investor of uh, Yale CIO. If anyone put it more succinctly, and if anyone who proved the, the return power of private investments was Mr. Swenson, yep. and I follow his uh, lead.
0: All right, C.J., thank you so much for uh, chatting with us. Really fascinating stuff. We probably need to talk more about alternative investment opportunities as opposed to that 60-40 traditional equity fixed income portfolio. C.J. Fellini, managing partner at Noyak Capital, giving us some thoughts here and uh, talking about some of the logistics supply chain issues and some investment opportunities. Uh, there. So, pretty fascinating stuff. And again, alternatives, uh, I think for a lot of investors, you know, probably not representative enough mm. in the average portfolio for the average investor. Uh, maybe rethink that, at, particularly in the world of low yields, um, kind of an issue there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer.